Welcome to this podcast series, Magic and Mayhem, Discover the Secrets to Creating Magnificent Books for Kids and Teens. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm founder of the Australian Writers' Centre. Magic and Mayhem is a free podcast and ebook series brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre. If you're interested in writing for kids and teens, join us on a journey that's set to inspire and enhance your own writing skills. And a great idea would be to download your free Magic and Mayhem ebook with lots of writing tips and insights into writing for children and young adults at magicandmayhem.com.au. That's magicandmayhem.com.au to download your free ebook. This episode, we're talking to Meg McKinley, who is a children's writer and poet. She's published 19 books for children, ranging from picture books through to young adult novels and a collection of poetry for adults. Meg's work has been shortlisted for numerous awards and her book, A Single Stone, won Best Children's Fiction at the Aurealis Awards. Here's Meg talking to Alison Tate from the Australian Writers' Centre. Meg McKinley is a children's writer and poet who lives near the ocean in Fremantle, Western Australia. Her publications range from picture books, chapter books and young adult novels through to poetry for adults. Recently, her children's novel, A Single Stone, was awarded the Aurealis Award for Best Children's Fiction. Welcome to the program, Meg. Thank you very much for having me. Excellent. Um, Now, I read on your website that your writing journey actually began with poetry. Can you tell us a little bit about that, like how you kind of started writing poetry? Yes, and I will say that I guess my publication journey in some ways also began with poetry. I think, I think I, like many people, I started writing poetry, well I was going to say I started to write poetry as an adolescent, but that's in fact not true. I started writing poetry when I was much, much younger, and I think that has to do with the fact that my father introduced me to poetry at a very young age so he read me poetry i grew up loving the rhythms and the cadence of poetry and even though i often didn't understand what he was reading to me i just knew that it was sort of it was a space that i enjoyed being in so i guess it was a natural sort of fit for me when i was very young i was writing rhyming poetry you know it's that real kind of da 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 in primary school when I became a teenager I was writing you know the free verse the sort of the angsty exploring existential stuff that I think we lots of us have and we put in drawers and hope that we'll never see the light of day but I you know I look back on some of it now and there were the seeds of stuff there but fundamentally I think the reason my writing began with poetry is that I am not a natural storyteller I'm not a good plotter. I'm someone who comes to writing and creativity more out of little vignettes and fragments of stuff. I've always been an observer and I've always been someone who jots down little bits and pieces of stuff. And those the sorts of things that I've jotted down over many years, well before I was ever thinking that I might be a writer because I fell into this sort of accidentally, those are the sorts of things that lent themselves more to poetry in the beginning. So I felt, at least. All right. So can you remember the first poem you had published? Like, how did it come about? What what made you start um, submitting your work to, I'm assuming, literary journals is where you would have been published? Yes, exactly. And in fact, in fact, I think 
I think that my very first poem was published in Blue Dog, which is the, or was, I'm not sure if it's still going, I should know this, but the Journal of Poetry Australia. And that also came about, I will say, in a sort of an accidental way. When my daughter was very young, I think she may have even been just two, I, I was an academic and I was working in Japanese literature and I had to go to Japan and I was going off for a month, which was quite a long time to leave a child of that age. We hadn't been apart. And I when I was leaving, that point where you go through the gates you, and you say goodbye and my husband was there and my daughter and I actually had a moment where I thought I physically cannot get through these gates. I can't be separated from her. And it caught me so absolutely by surprise as soon as I got through into the departure lounge I felt this incredible reversal this incredible feeling of lightness and you know when you're a new mother and you know you've had your child on you for these couple of years and I just thought this is incredible I feel so free and then hot on the heels of that feeling of freedom this incredible sense of guilt Mm. at feeling that and I sat down and I started writing about it and and I don't really know why but this stuff came pouring out of me and it it turned into a poem or what I thought might be a poem. I thought this might be something, I'll send it off somewhere and it was published and you could have knocked me over with a feather. <laughs> so um, that's sort of how it started and, and at that point I started thinking, well, perhaps some of these other bits and pieces that I've gathered over the years that are just sitting in notebooks and that are just funny little observations about life maybe they are the beginnings of things and I think that was where it really started for me. So I'd imagine that poetry is not an easy field for aspiring writers like it just seems to me that there are so (laughs) few places to actually put poetry even these days like did did you have any sense of that when you started doing it or was it just like well this is what I'm writing I'm going to see what happens? Uh, I I didn't have a sense of it. I was working then, I was an academic at the University of Western Australia, so I was aware of Westerly, which is a literary journal where I also published some work quite early. I, I was aware of some literary journals, but I... I guess if I had been conscious of the difficulty of placing things, it wouldn't have concerned me because once this switch got flipped, and I know that's a cliche, but it is sort of how it felt. Once that had happened, I couldn't stop working with these fragments. And, and it was such a, a pleasurable challenge for me to try and turn them into something that I wanted to send them off. And I knew that I would keep doing that. And even if they didn't get published, that there was a joy and an inherent sort of appeal in that process. But but I also think the time that I started doing that was around the time that, you know, little blogs and websites were starting to take off on the internet. And so there were many more opportunities opening up for publication in different sorts of forums. And I think that's even more so the case now. You know, there are lots of opportunities to put your work out there it sort of depends on what you want to get out of it. You know, do you want to be paid? Do you mm. want uh, the the publication credit in terms of getting something into a particular journal and those sorts of things? So I guess those are variables as well. So how did you go from that to writing children's books? Like how did you, how and why did you start <laughs> writing children's books? 
It's it's all accidental, and you know, honestly, <laughs> the accidental. My daughter poet. is eighteen now. Yeah, that's the accidental everything, really. <laughs> um, my, my daughter is eighteen. The accidental everything would be a great title for something. Yes, yeah, write that, write that down. Business. Yeah, they can't have it. It's no, mine. Yeah, copyright. Um, my daughter, who is now 18, I think is responsible for my writing career in many ways. And in fact, that poem that I mentioned earlier is something that became a key part of that poem is that afterwards, after I arrived in Japan, my husband actually told me that because she'd been feeling a bit hot and I had said to him, I think she's sick. And he said, no, no, she's fine. He said, the moment the doors closed behind me, she actually threw up all over the carpet in the airport. Oh. And this became a key part of that poem. And she said to me over the years, because I'd go out to do poetry readings, oh, you've got to read that vomit poem again. Can you just stop? <laughs> when she was a teenager, this idea that I was still reading this poem about her throwing up in an airport. But she got me into poetry in that sense, but she also got me into children's writing because... Sorry, I'm just oh. adjusting my headset a little Yes, bit. I can hear that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I do apologise. It was going to drop off. Um, what happened was, again, she, she was about four years old and I think I was just, I was in children's books because I was reading them to her and this is one of my great loves when she was young. She's my only child. Just the pleasure of reading to a child and I miss that now and I still assault her with, you know, books from time to time. <laughs> she's less patient these days. But... I loved that and I was in children's books, I think, and so possibly stories were sort of the water that I was swimming in. And what happened was I'd, she'd had a friend over for a sleepover and I was driving him home to his house the next day and it was a house I'd been to many, many times. He was in the back seat with my daughter and I just started playing with him in the way that you might do with a four-year-old because four-year-olds love whimsical play and I said oh oh um wait where, where's your house I've forgotten is this the turn oh I think we've gone past it. oh is that your house oh that's a shop oh no I've forgotten I, I I'm lost I need you to tell me how to get to your house and I looked in the rear vision mirror and he wasn't interested at all he had his arms folded and he was rolling his eyes and he just said in this hideous world weary tone you know where my house is and I thought this is wrong and something something in me just reacted and I said well you know I knew where it was yesterday when I picked you up but who's to say where it will be today and I just saw this light go on in his eyes and he went what <laughs> and and I was on the hook then. I had to tell this story. So it wasn't much of a story then, but I just came up with this idea of a house that walks around at night <laughs> so that when the family wakes up in the morning, they never know where they're going to be. And I thought, hang on a minute. Could this be a picture book? I've been reading picture books to my daughter all these years. I think this could be a picture book. So I went home and I wrote it and I worked on it until it was, you know, about 2,800 words, which, as your listeners will know, is the perfect length for a picture book. <laughs> and, um, and I sent it off and I actually got a very... <laughs> I got a very promising response from a publisher and I thought wow this is super easy you said they cut three quarters <laughs> three quarters of yeah, the words but, but it didn't work out it yeah. didn't work out all kinds of things happened at their end and it didn't work out and I thought that's fine because it's super easy I'll just send it to another publisher and it, that book I was going to say it never got published but it is actually just published in October of last year. It took me 14 years <gasps> to find the right shape for that story. How but, amazing. 
Yeah, but in the middle of all that, I published another 11 books because, again, with the switch and the flipping, that once that had happened, I just I, I could not turn it off and I started thinking, hang on a minute, could this be something that I can actually do? So and how many did you write before your first one was published? Uh, I would say that I probably wrote about 10 picture books, most of them appalling. Mm-hmm. Um, there are three novels that I completed, none of which were any good, um, but, but some of which had promising elements and one of which was a young adult novel, which um, the first 10,000 10, words of which I wrote quite quickly because I, I heard at the last minute that there was a mentorship opportunity that was coming up for young adult, which was through what was then the State Lit Centre in WA, which is now writing WA. And so I wrote 10,000 words quite quickly and I was really fortunate enough to be chosen for this mentorship and the manuscript was then completely torn apart. I had to complete it. It was then torn apart by my mentor and I revised it and that then got me to a masterclass at Verona with Mark McLeod and he mm. tore it apart again and I revised it. And it, that went on for a long time and that book was never published but it sort of... It got me some good feedback and people in the industry got to see it and I it sufficiently encouraged me that I thought perhaps this is something I can do. I need to do a lot of work and I did need to do a lot of work but perhaps this is something that I can do. Wow. So there's a fair bit of persistence involved in that though. A lot of persistence and I have I have a thick folder full of rejection letters. There was one point, I think, I think it was probably about five years from the time I started seriously submitting work until I got that first real, the glimmer of hope that turned into what became my first novel. And towards the end of that process, I'd actually started thinking, this is not going to happen in Australia. The market is too small. I think my stuff is okay. I think there's something there, but I need to, maybe I'll try the US. And so I started sending stuff off to the US and I'd got some nibbles, Mm. but nothing concrete. So the first thing that you had published was actually a novel for children as opposed to a picture book? It was a novel for children and it came out in 2007 and it was a novel aimed mostly at uh, girls in upper primary and it was called Annabelle again and there's a bit of a story to how that got published as well it's a story of heartbreak and redemption in that I sent it off to an imprint of a publisher that was around at the time called Otford Press Mm -hmm. and there was an imprint called Banana Books I I sent it off and I got an email quite quickly from an editor there saying, this is really promising, you have a great voice, Um, congratulations, fantastic work, I'm sending this to another reader, we'll get back to you. And I heard back from them again quite quickly, second reader loves it, we want to take this to acquisitions. I thought, it's all happening, it's all happening, and then I heard nothing from them. Mm. And at that time, I was a subscriber to an industry newsletter called Pass It On, and a few weeks later, I saw a note in Pass It On that Watford Press had gone under that they oh, closed no. their doors. And I <gasps> thought, oh. That is heartbreaking. So, 
It was, and I emailed this editor and said, oh, look, I've just seen this and, you know, thanks for your interest and I hope that, you know, it hasn't, it's not too much of a shock to you. This, this has happened quite suddenly. And she replied and said, someone should have let you know. I'm really sorry, but please persist with this book because we really think it has promise. And I don't know how much time elapsed. But it may have been a year later that I had some interest from a couple of other publishers, but nothing definite. That editor emailed me and said, I am interviewing for a, a position at Walker Books who are beginning a local list. Nothing definite, but I'm, I'm optimistic that I might get this position and I'd love to consider this manuscript if it's still available. Is wow. it still available? And wow. the rest is history because that was Sue Whiting. Oh, who and she's is now She's the publishing manager at Walker Books now and we've worked together closely ever since and I, I feel like Sue has really built my career and turned me into the writer that I am today if I'm any kind of writer. She's, she's a fantastic editor who really gets me. Mm. So, so, okay, that's, that's a great story. Having had all that experience and all that persistence and all of those <laughs> things, what... What do you think is the secret to writing a great children's novel? Like, what was different about that book that got it over the line? Honestly, I I think it was the voice of the book. I I feel like my first few books, I was trying to do something that wasn't quite me and I hadn't quite found the voice that I needed to write in. But there was something about, about this particular book that... I was able to find the voice of the character more easily and I, I I always feel a little bit nervous when people ask me to give them, you know, tips and explain how I do things because it's so nebulous and hard to explain. But there was just something about this book that when I started writing it, do you know what I think it is now that we're talking about it? Because it's a book about a girl in year four who is sort of on the outside of things. And she's not being bullied, but she's just, she doesn't really have a close friend. She had a close friend, but that close friend moved away. And I had an experience in year four of having some friends who I thought were close friends, but they moved away, but not physically. They moved away mm. sort of psychologically and emotionally through a series of events. You know, someone intervened and all my friends who I thought were, were my friends were suddenly saying, we're not your friends and we've never liked you. And, and if you've ever been in a situation even remotely similar, you can probably imagine how even talking about it, I can still feel what that felt like. Mm. And so I think I was able to tap into that and capture that in the voice of that character and that really worked for that book. And Sue actually said to me, you know, I, I am a terrible plotter, I'm awful with structure and that book needed a lot of work, but Sue, who was my editor on that book, said to me, you know, plot, that's fine. It, it's not that it doesn't matter, but we can fix plot, we can work with you on plot, mm. but voice, that's harder to fix. If you don't have it, it's hard to get it. So I think that was really key for me and kind of inhabiting that space of 10-year-old girl. All right, so then moving on a bit. So the A Single Stone has just won the Aurealis Award. Where did the idea for that book come from? Oh, gosh. Um, 
This is another question that I sometimes do struggle with, um, especially when I'm asked where did the idea come from? Because what happens with me often is that um, it's sort of an alignment of ideas. It's an alignment of things that don't seem to be connected. Mm. But at a certain point, you know, I'm a magpie and I gather stuff from all over the place. I have a lot of noise in my head because I'm collecting things all the time. At a certain point, things that don't seem to be connected bump together. And I often think of it, if you can visualise, I don't know if you've ever seen Mercury, where it's sort of, you know, there's all these disconnected blobs. And at a certain point when those blobs get close enough to each other, they connect and mm. they form up and, and off they go. They start to form this kind of flowing stream. That's how it feels for me. So with a single stone, it was a couple of things. And those the two main things were, I think, uh, when I was about seven, I read the Narnia series, which I loved, and my favourite of the Narnia, the Narnia series is um, The Silver Chair, oh, and yes. there's a moment in that where the children and Puddle Glum, the marsh, we will go down below and they go down underneath, you know, underground into a place where they're not very comfortable at all, and they meet these gnomes underground, and the gnomes have come up from much further underground and the gnomes say we don't know how you can stand being up there outside with that horrible expanse of sky with no roof above you and I remember thinking at the age of seven it was the first time I really felt something so fundamental um, not everyone thinks the way that I do and it's possible to have a worldview that's completely other mm. and I think that stayed with me and formed the very early seeds of this character who is so at home inside a mountain with rock pressing down on her. I mm. think that's where that came from. Mm. But the other element that joined up with that, and this didn't happen for many, many years, it was just that these things were launched in my brain and eventually connected is a line from um, Franz Kafka, who writes these pithy little fragments of stuff, or wrote these pithy little fragments called um, the aphorisms. And um, one of the aphorisms is this really odd little thing that just goes like this. It's um, leopards break into the temple and drink to the dregs what is in the sacrificial pitchers. This happens over and over and over. Eventually, it can be predicted in advance and becomes incorporated into the ritual. And it was this idea as a teenager when I read that growing up in an Anglican high school, the idea of ritual and how something so random can come to be co-opted into ritual and what that means for hmm. belief systems and power and those sorts of things. So those are the two very early seeds for, for the book, but it didn't really come to me as an idea until about five or six years ago. So you're exploring some fairly big themes and ideas and stuff in, in the book. I mean, has its success surprised you or did you always have a feeling about this particular story? Uh, no. Uh, well, no to both, I guess. The success, I wouldn't say that it surprised me. I'd certainly I don't ever expect that kind of thing. I've, I sort of hoped quietly that it might find a certain sort of readership. I think I guess I have been, I've certainly been surprised by the number of shortlistings and that kind of thing because I always think of my books as being a bit niche, especially this sort of book where, you know, I write slow, quiet sorts of books. They're not fast-paced. They're not page-turners. 
so I, I didn't expect it to get the kind of mainstream acceptance that it has. Mm. Um, the second part to your question was... Did you always have a feeling about the story, like about this particular story? The answer to that question is emphatically no. Okay. Um, I, I had a feeling that if I could manage to write it, that it would be a story of which I probably would feel quite proud. Yes. But I, I certainly didn't have any feeling that it would meet a wide readership in the way that it has. But I thought there would be readers out there like the kind of reader that I was, yep. that it would be the right sort of book for. But I, like I say, I always think that that's possibly a more niche reader and perhaps I'm wrong about that. Clearly. Yeah. <laughs> so do you write full-time now or are you fitting writing into your life still? I am still fitting writing into my life. And how do you I, go I about doing that? <laughs> with great difficulty. I know. Uh, I look. I work about ten hours a week for a writing organisation, and there's voluntary work that I do, and then I do school presets and workshops, and I have various other commitments. Mm-hmm. So the writing does fit in. I I have to keep a close eye on things. I have to be very careful about my writing time. But I do go for whole periods when I'm not able to do much of anything at all. But when I'm not putting words on the page. Especially if I'm working on a novel, if I'm going through a period when I can't actually put words on the page, I still try to connect with Mm. the work in some way, even if that's just to sit down in front of it and revel in the mess of it for 15 minutes or so, Mm. just to remind myself that this is what I'm doing and not to lose touch with it too much. So the other thing I noticed you do do is that you're you've got a very comprehensive website, which is terrific, and you you blog. Is is blogging something that you like to do? Um, yes and no. I I like to have an outlet where I can talk about things that appeal to me from time to time, I suppose, and sink my teeth into topics Mm -hmm. that are writing-related but that I can't necessarily explore in my work in the same way. So I guess it's possibly it's a little bit narcissistic in that sense, and certainly it's narcissistic and self-serving in the sense that I don't treat it in the way that someone who was advising someone to build a writer platform would advise you to treat a blog. I don't have a schedule. I don't really even see it as a blog. I just see it as a not even a semi-regular thing. It's just, it's there, and when I have something to say, I'll say it. It's in the back of my mind that I should probably put something there once a month at the minimum, but yep. it's not a priority for me, and I'm not concerned about traffic or anything like that. It's just there. Just there? Well, it's just there, and that's yep. good. That's a good start. Yeah. Um, so do you do other things, um, like you were talking about speaking and workshops and all of that sort of stuff, do you, are those, is that the kind of where you spend your time with regards to kind of keeping your name out there and your books out there and that sort of stuff? Um, I'm saying a lot of yes and no. I, I, I don't do it for that reason. No. I, I guess I do it fundamentally because, look, 
at heart, I'm a complete introvert and a bit of a hermit. And in mm. fact, when my daughter turned 18 just recently and I realised she's at uni now and I realised, hang on a minute, I don't even have to drive her around anymore. She's driving herself. I don't have to take her to buses. That idea appeared to me as such a relief, you know, as if I was someone shipwrecked who'd washed up on a beach. And the, the sheer force of that relief made me realise this is dangerous mm. and I must stay connected to the world. So it's a way of staying connected to the world in a broad sense but more importantly to readers you know my impulse is always to be solitary Mm. and to get out there to say yes to things and to get out there and to find myself exhausted by it but also really energized in a different way Mm. and to meet those readers and it sounds ridiculous to say that I can forget about the readers and who they are, but I can. Mm. I'm writing for my past self, I think, and it's good to be reminded of who kids are now. So I think fundamentally that's, that's why I keep doing it. Okay. All right, so for our final question for today, we are coming to the great three top tips for aspiring writers question. Um, so I'm just wondering what you've got for me. I... I've already said to you, I think, that I, I'm nervous when approached to give tips and mm-hmm. advice, but I, I think I'm going to give the tips that I give to kids when I talk to them about writing. You know, okay. they often say to me, what should I be doing if I want to be a writer? And I think these things are the same. And one of the first things is read, you know, and I'm probably talking more to adults now, but I would say to be a reader when you're young is so important. You know, mm-hmm. when I was teaching at uni, I could tell as soon as I got that first piece of writing I could tell the people who had grown up in language um, and had a real ear for language and I think you can improve at that Mm. when you're older but fundamentally you can't get it in quite the same way if you've missed it Mm. so read and be in language and I would also say I guess this is number two be in the world which is actually the tagline of one of my picture books, 10 Tiny Things, be in the world. You've got to be out there and you've got to have that fundamental curiosity. Unplug yourself, let yourself be bored, stare out the window of buses, don't be looking at screens all the time, you know, have that space for ideas to fall into. I find it hilarious when people say, well, where do you get your ideas? Because my problem is too many ideas. They are just absolutely everywhere. And the third thing, I guess, so read, be in language, be curious, be in the world. The third thing, I guess, is just let yourself be your absolute strangest self because I think we are all fundamentally strange and weird at heart. And those connections, the little connections that we make, we will make in a way that no one else can make. And I really think that's where the most interesting stories and ideas come from. But as you get older, it's really easy to shut that down because it's a bit too... We don't, we don't want to let that happen. We want to let ourselves have those thoughts. Fantastic. So, those are my three top tips. And you've done very well for a person who doesn't like giving top tips. Well done. Um, done it. <laughs> all right. Well, so that's us for today. Thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Congratulations on the win. And um, I see that the book is actually coming out. Where is it coming out? The UK somewhere? It's- Coming out in the UK in June. Fantastic. And it's coming out with Candlewick in the US next year sometime. Fantastic. That's really exciting. Well done. Um, And, yeah, thanks very much for your time and best of luck with it all. Thanks so much. It's been my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed the interview. 
I'm Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, and I'm the internationally published best-selling author of two epic adventure series for kids aged nine plus. There are four books in the Mapmaker Chronicles series, Race to the End of the World, Prisoner of the Black Hawk, Breath of the Dragon, and Beyond the Edge of the Map, and two in my latest series, The Adaban Cipher, The Book of Secrets, and The Book of Answers. Find out more about me and my books at alisontait.com. That's A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T dot com. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you'd like to write fiction for kids and teens, our five-week online course, How to Write for Children and Young Adults, will help you get there faster. Find your voice, create characters, dialogue and plots to fit your age group and write compelling stories that young readers will love, all in a couple of hours a week. You'll also enjoy the convenience of learning from anywhere and get your very own tutor providing personal feedback on your writing. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash children's author. I think a great takeaway from this interview is what changed for Meg and led her to being published. She'd written her fair share of not-so-great manuscripts before her first one was accepted and published. The difference, she found her voice. Yes, that old chestnut. We've heard it a few times this series. How to find it, though, can be hard. I like what Meg said in her tips. She said, be your strangest self. You can definitely tell she's a poet as well as an author, but by tapping into that strange part of yourself, or if you prefer that unique part of yourself, that's how you find your voice. So don't be afraid to be a bit strange. And there's something strange about this crazy business of writing. Meg had some really lovely imagery. I like the way that she has ideas like blobs of mercury coming together. It can seem like alchemy. But as she said, it's all about being present in the world and making space for ideas to fall into. If you'd like to connect with me personally, then feel free to do that on Instagram or Facebook. I'm Valerie Koo, K-H-O-O, on Instagram. Uh, although my posts on Instagram are more about my art, but I do talk about writing as well. Or you can head on over to our regular podcast group on Facebook and connect with me there. Just search for So You Want To Be A Writer podcast community and request to join. It's free. And yes, if you didn't know, we have a regular weekly podcast, not just about children's authors, but writers from all genres and walks of life. It's called So You Want to Be a Writer. So you can just check that out on iTunes if you haven't already. We'd love for you to subscribe.